Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's go to Philippians chapter 3, where we left off in our study last time. If you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies. They'll be happy to give you one if you slip your hand up so you can follow along with us this morning. Philippians 3, and last time we went down in chapter 3 as far as verse 16. This morning we pick up in the 17th verse and we'll go down through the remainder of the chapter. And if you're turned there, shall we stand together in honor of God's word as we read our passage of scripture this morning. Philippians 3, beginning in the 17th verse, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And Father, we ask for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to prepare us to be able to hear what the Spirit might say to this part of your church. And Lord, as always, we ask that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your Spirit and your power, speaking directly and personally, and Lord, powerfully, to each and every one of us this morning. Speak to us now, Lord, through the things that you've written and spoken in your word and bless the going forth of your word in Jesus' name we ask and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, why is it do you think that our generation and certainly our current culture puts such an incredible focus upon health? You know, if you look in our culture, in our current generation, whether it's in the arena of exercise and the commitment to it and the cost involved in it, or whether it's uh, diet uh, and, again, the commitment to that and sometimes the cost involved in eating a particular diet. And, again, all of these things just uh, cumulatively going towards the incredible concern and focus upon health. You know, we have to be healthy and health is important and and all of this emphasis and effort and time and again in and of itself I'm not saying that those things necessarily are wrong the Bible does tell us that you know bodily exercise profits a little but it says but godliness is profitable for all things in the life that now is and in the life to come uh, and I bring that up this morning, this incredible focus upon health, because sometimes I wonder, I, I really do, I, I tend to be a person who ponders things at times if, if they were a different way, and sometimes I really tend to wonder if our world, and let me go so far to say even if the church put uh, the same emphasis upon spiritual health, and the same focus on spiritual health and the same priority on spiritual health, what the world might look like or what the church might become like. Well, this morning, the passage we're going to look at together 
it supplies not all it's not an exhaustive list by any means or teaching on on spiritual health but i think it does supply to us some ideas for maintaining spiritual health Uh, and certainly i think it's an area where all of our focus needs to become a little more concerned about now paul remember in the prior verses we were looking at in chapter three has just been talking specifically it seems about the issue of making spiritual progress and making spiritual progress in our relationship with the lord remember paul there in chapter three was talking about things where he was saying you know i want to know the lord he'd been a christian for 30 years and he was a pretty solid committed follower of jesus christ none of us would question that and yet paul was still saying you know i I just i still want to know him I want to know him more deeply. I don't want to know him more intimately in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says, you know, not that I've already attained and I know that I'm not perfected. I haven't arrived at some spiritual pinnacle or some place where I can settle into to kind of a plateau and say, hey, I've risen further than anyone else. And certainly this is far. Paul said, no, I haven't yet apprehended all that I was apprehended for. I still want to press on toward the the prize and the goal of the upward call of god in christ jesus and paul was just talking about this very issue of the importance of making spiritual progress continually growing and developing in his personal relationship with the lord and it seems now as he goes on in his thoughts it seems to me as almost now he's referring to some other things that could also help and contribute to keeping us spiritually healthy Uh, And three things particularly I think he points out as we go through these verses. First of all, he begins in verse 17 to talk about the importance of following godly examples for my Christian life. And as you and I follow godly examples, good godly examples, uh, and their influence upon us, that will certainly help us stay spiritually healthy. Now, together with that, he'll then in verse 18 and 19, we'll see, begin to talk as well about identifying and avoiding unhealthy influences and the same way good examples and good influences help us to stay spiritually healthy in the same way on the other side of that in a negative effect ungodly unhealthy influences if we allow ourselves to be impacted to them uh, like bacteria introduced to the system of a human body they'll begin to deteriorate our health spiritually in the opposite way And then also, I think a third thing he points out as we get to verses 20 and 21 is keeping a heavenly focus while we're still living on this earth. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. Well, look with me in verse 17. The first thing Paul speaks about, he says to them as he's going on in his thoughts, brethren, join in following my example and note those, take notice, he says, of those who so walk as you have us for a pattern so paul's instructing the christians here in philippi that they should look for they should recognize and then once they find good godly examples that they should he says follow the good examples that are among them and you notice in verse 17 there that he refers to his own life as well as others who walked like him in a similar pattern as helpful examples showing forth a pattern of how to live the christian life he's actually giving an invitation if you notice his language in verse 17 he says join join in he says he's giving an invitation join in following my example and taking notice of others who so walk as well 
Now, this reminds us of what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul said these words there. He said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Again, Paul the Apostle was a very dedicated follower who sincerely sought to follow Jesus Christ. He was a man who loved the Lord, and from the day that he met Jesus, Paul sought to live for the Lord in every way that he could, and he's now inviting believers, you notice in verse 17, these Christians in Philippi, as he did the Christians in Corinth and probably other believers where he traveled around, he's actually inviting them now to observe how he lived and how he walked out his Christian life and how he lived in his personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say, that is a pretty bold, if you think about it, a pretty bold statement to be able to make. You have to be pretty confident, and can I go further to say, even a little bit courageous, to be comfortable enough to say to people, not only verbally, you know, they probably didn't have recording in that day as we do, because then once it's recorded, you're stuck. But Paul put it in written form, so there it is recorded. It could be validated. Paul actually said, I invite you to join in following my example. You should follow my example. He said to the Corinthians, you should imitate me, he said, and other people who walk and live the way that I do. Now, by no means, don't misunderstand, Paul's not being arrogant here. He's not being self-promoting. That's not the point of what he's doing here. There's not a prideful spirit in the midst of this. Paul was just sincerely trying to do what he maturely understood that Christians need in their lives as spiritual sheep. He understood that just like sheep, their survival and their health and their ability to do well, it's completely dependent upon a shepherd, a shepherd to lead them and to guide them and to provide direction and and give leadership to them. And part of that involved, Paul understood in a spiritual way, God calls us sheep, And certainly Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd, and we'll talk about that. But nonetheless, Paul still understood the spiritual reality that part of sheep needing guidance and direction is that they need the spiritual life, the Christian walk, modeled before them in good godly patterns so that they can look at and glean from those examples to help and assist them in their own lives. We all need godly living illustrated for us through personal example. We all need that. Jesus understood that. In fact, Jesus is the one that set the pattern for that. And Paul probably, as if everything else as well, took the concept from Jesus in understanding that. You remember the familiar passage in John chapter 13 where Jesus there, shortly before he's about to die and go back into heaven at the right hand of his father, Jesus gathered his disciples together and before he even gave them the incredible teaching that he did in John chapters 13 through 16, the first thing Jesus did is before he gave them a lecture, he gave them what? A life example. As he, demonstrating love through sacrificial humble servanthood, remember, he washed the feet of his disciples 
in this incredible act of servitude and humility and here their leader among them was the most servant-hearted one in their midst he began to wash their feet and then jesus after he served them in the way that he did said if then i your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, you should be treating one another and serving one another humbly and sacrificially the way that I just did. And listen to what he then said, verse 15, John 13. He said, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, Jesus lived out his life. He ministered among the disciples. And then he said specifically, I've given you an example. Do as I have done. Emulate what I have just done. And I think that throughout the course of the ministry of Jesus, no doubt we have that one example that this was much of the way in which the disciples learned. They watched, they saw the example of Jesus, how he spoke to people, how he dealt with people, how he responded to people, how he interacted with people, what he put his priorities on, the way he responded to religious hypocrites with sternness and severity, and then the way he would turn with sensitivity and tenderness to children and people that others would just overlook as non essential and they watch Jesus and they learn from Jesus so often I have found in my life that so much more that I learn is caught rather than taught by watching and paying attention and observing good and godly examples and I think much of what the disciples learned I'm saying they didn't learn through the teaching and the ministry the lecture communicating that Jesus did but I think they learned a whole lot too by watching him live it out in genuineness and sincerity and let me just say this morning the greatest example anyone should ever follow is the Lord Jesus Christ he is the perfect man, son of God and son, son of man. And there is no greater example in humanity that anyone should ever observe or emulate or follow than the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, that being said, just like with Paul here, God has intended for us all to benefit from godly examples that he sets around us in our lives of individuals like Paul who were dedicated followers of Jesus as well to learn from their examples. The key is that we find individuals, listen to me, that are sincerely following Jesus Christ. Paul said, again, can I remind you his words to the Corinthians? Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul was a very honest man. You read his words in Romans chapter 7 that he had his own personal struggles. He never set himself up as something more spiritual than what he was. He lived the reality of who he was in the midst of everybody. And I think Paul would be the first to say, look, if ever I am not imitating Christ in my words or my actions, then you should not follow my example. I think he'd be the first to say that. But overall, the overarching picture of the way Paul lived his life and the pattern of his life, it was Christ-like. He was a dedicated follower of Jesus. He sought to live for the Lord and walk with the Lord and let the word of the Lord govern and guide his life and why he did what he did and why he didn't do things that he wouldn't do. And, and, and Paul's overarching example was valuable 
And because of that, Paul was able with a sense of comfortability and confidence to say, follow me. I'm setting an example for you. I'm seeking to provide an example for you to follow and look for others like myself as patterns who you can learn from as well to have assistance in your Christian walk. And would you agree that would strongly instill some additional incentive in Paul's life to walk seriously with the Lord. Because once you say, hey, I want to provide an example for you where there is a tremendous at that point now incentive inside of you. Uh, if I'm an example, I need to think two times more than everyone else about what I say in certain situations or what I don't say and what I do in certain situations, what I don't do and how I make my decisions and what my lifestyle is like. And see, the Bible teaches that part of the role of a spiritual leader that God raises up in a place of authority and gives a role of leadership among the body of Christ, part of the role of a spiritual leader among other responsibilities is absolutely supposed to be to serve as an example. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5. He said, To the elders who are among you, I as a fellow elder, elder exhort, listen to what he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Peter points out two things. Oversight, yes. And many people love the oversight aspect but they royally neglect the example they set by how they live. And the Bible says, no, both. You are called, you are responsible, your life is an example, and you need to take that seriously, God says to the spiritual leader. It's part of your role. It's part of the requirement God puts upon a spiritual leader. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul tells believers there that he lived and ministered among them the way he did in their community. He said to make ourselves an example, listen, of how you should follow us. Paul then instructed Timothy, his young protege in ministry, in a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, Timothy, as a young minister, let no one despise your youth just because you're younger, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Again, we see this repeatedly where God says, look, part of the role, one of the main responsibilities of a spiritual leader is that they are to function in a way whereby they are consistently providing an example to God's people, an example to the sheep of God's flock and to those that they serve in such a way whereby Christians should be able to look at their elders, their pastors and say, do you know what? That's how you're supposed to do marriage. So as a pastor, that means, or as an elder, or as a leader in some capacity, I should live my life in such a way, and my marriage should become, by no means, am I saying I'm ever, my marriage should be something where people can say, that's how you do marriage. That's how you raise children. That's how you manage your money. That's how you make decisions. That's how you live a lifestyle that's pleasing to the Lord. That, that's the type of faith that should be demonstrated in how we follow the Lord. That's the, and see, these things are to be examples. They're intended to be that way. It's an incredible responsibility for those who desire spiritual leadership, but it's something that God gives as a gift to the body of Christ. 
And I say that to say that, listen, if at every point you begin to see that the individual that you are allowing to provide leadership in your life is not a good example, it's time to wake up. Because there are lots of good godly examples. And that's part of the responsibility that God's intended. And those to submit yourself to, it's an important thing to regard that. Paul says, you have us, he says in this verse, as a pattern a model, an outline to imitate. Now, what was Paul's pattern? Well, I think it was lots of different things, but certainly a lot of what he shares in chapter three was the pattern. And notice that Paul says in verse 17 as well, take note, not just of me. Again, this shows you his heart's in the right place. He's not arrogant. He's not self-promoting. He says, take note of others as well. I'm not your only example, Paul's saying. Take note of others who so walk as good godly examples as pattern. Interesting, that term note that he uses there is the Greek word scopio, where we get our English microscope or telescope. And what do you do with a telescope? Well, you use a telescope to, to what? To try and discover things, to focus in and to find and make discoveries. That's what you do with a microscope. So he's saying scopio, scope out, he's saying. Look for, take incentive, actually look for individuals that are good and healthy examples to actively try and learn from them and emulate. I think two direct applications can be made from what Paul's saying here in verse 17. The first being that we should seek to be, all of us, just like Paul. We should seek to be good, godly examples that can provide a helpful pattern for other people to benefit from. We should all seek to do that. Would you agree with me so often in every generation, and ours certainly is included, there is always a lack of good and godly examples in our culture. Oh, there's plenty of other people being good examples. Trust me, there is a tremendous need in our culture. There's a tremendous need in the body of Christ for good, godly examples that we can all seek to be as we seek to follow the Lord and live our lives in such a way. How wonderful would it be if, like Paul, we could, with our words and with our lifestyle, convey the same thing. Do you know what? Hey, follow my example. Follow my example. I'm seeking to set an example here. We all, hear me, have a level of influence. Oh, well, I don't have any level of influence. Yes, you do. You do. As a student, you have a level of influence on other people around you in your school system and your example could have a powerful impact upon all the other students and friends that you have. Hey, this is somebody that's a Christian kid, that's a teenager that's not afraid to really live for Jesus in an ungodly environment where everybody else is doing all kinds of other things. That's a powerful example, a powerful example. As a young person, I trust, trust me when I tell you, you have other people who are then younger than you. You're in high school, then you have junior highs, and those junior high kids are looking at you in high school. And those grammar school students are looking at you in junior high. You have influence many times beyond even the ability that you recognize. You don't even realize the influence that you have. As parents, we have a tremendous level of influence. As husbands and fathers, we're called to be spiritual leaders, which goes together with that. Our example is essential. Essential. I want my kids to see me reading my Bible. I want my kids to accidentally find me on my knees praying once in a while. I want them to. Not because I'm trying to show off something. I want them, by the way I live my life, to see what it means to follow Jesus Christ because I know that by dynamic, I have an influence upon them. 
in your job place you have the capacity to influence in the sphere and subculture that you live in maybe you're a young adult guess what you have a tremendous level of influence right there so wherever it is we all have a level of influence and would to God that we would say hey Lord help me to be a good example help me to be somebody again not that we're trying to in a distorted way draw attention to our no but help me to live my life silently but seriously for Christ in such a way where I don't have to even witness I just become a witness and I just am a witness by the way that I live my life and I think the other application of this is that we should all as well actively look for and follow good examples that God makes available to us it's an important thing I need good godly examples in my life one of the first verses the Lord strongly put on my heart as a brand new Christian reading the Bible was from Proverbs where it says he who walks with the wise will grow wise and I thought, you know what, Lord, I'm a brand new Christian. I thought Genesis was a rock group, but, you know, I just, I don't know nothing, nothing. I'm just a wretch that came out of the world. And I, you know, and here I am, I just graduated high school. So I, Lord, put in my life godly men. Lord, who I can look at and watch. I don't know how to be a husband. I'm getting married at 20 years old. What are you supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Have kids, or I don't know how to be a father, I don't know. But you know what? God is wonderfully gracious in that he sets examples around us. If we look for them, and we learn from them, and we glean from them, it's a gift from the Lord. And, and for us to have a teachable spirit that says, you know what? I can learn things from other people. I want to study people and observe people, and I want to find those people. I want to scopio. I want to note people who say, you know, that's somebody I can really learn something from especially in the arena of spiritual life. That is someone who I can learn things about God from. That is somebody who I can learn what it means to really serve Jesus Christ from. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. He says, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So being a good example, seek to do that. And benefit, look for good godly examples. Find them, scope them out, seriously. Take initiative to find a few and let the Lord teach you the things that he would through their lives. Now in the next statements, perhaps we see here a reason why Paul so strongly felt compelled to talk about a right example using himself because of the presence of what? The presence as well of bad examples. Look what he now says in verse 18 and 19. He says, for many walk, Again, you have us as a pattern, follow our example. For many walk, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So he reminds them, secondarily, another aspect of spiritual health and maintaining spiritual health he reminds them that they have to recognize and avoid unhealthy influences and to avoid being infected and impacted by them in a way where it will defile their minds notice he refers to them here in verse 18 as as he says there are many not just some he says there are many out there he says who walk that are look at the language enemies of the cross of christ the Holy Spirit uses that term to label those who are unhealthy for you and I as Christians to influence us. He uses that term. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's just a general term. Paul doesn't identify for us here who, the, who they were. 
He doesn't even give explanation what group he's talking about or what individuals he's thinking of. He just generically says these are enemies of the cross of Christ. So we know one thing. These are people who live and operate in a way that is in opposition to all that the cross of Jesus Christ represents. And they're not just not representing the cross of Christ well. Paul says, no, they actually are enemies. They're enemies. And the way they live, think, and operate, and all they do, they actually are enemies, and they oppose everything that the cross of Christ actually represents in its meaning. And what does the cross of Christ represent? Well, it represents to me things like love personified, love, love demonstrated that's what it represents the enemy of the cross of christ to me speaks of someone who fails to realize that the cross represents things like self-sacrifice and obedience and submission to the will of god not my will father but thy will be done that's what the cross represents submission to the will of god denial of self to obey what the will of god is to me, the cross of Christ as well certainly represents, of course, forgiveness of sin and access by faith into heaven's glory, by simple faith in the finished work of the bloodshed of Jesus Christ and that that is a finished work that nothing can be added to. And there will always be people and groups who operate in ways that are going to oppose strongly what the purpose and meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ represents. There will always be. People who are libertines, who, who, again, they want to take the grace of God and the liberty offered to us through Jesus and they want to use it as a license to sin and they dishonor and degrade what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished by their trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God by using grace as a license to sin and to mock everything that Jesus Christ suffered and died for. There will always be the presence of people who are legalists, who want to add works and religious things and say, look, well, to be saved by grace through faith alone, that's not sufficient. You need to do a few things. You also need to be baptized. You have to do this. You have to dress a certain way and, and, and to get really spiritual and to really have favor with God. Yet, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus too, but it's faith in Jesus plus this as well. Faith in Jesus plus performance or faith in Jesus and don't watch rated R movies or faith in Jesus and, and don't do that or don't smoke or chew or run with girls who do, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and God says, no, that is an enemy of the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ says, finished there's nothing that can be done to make us right with god nothing because jesus did it all when he suffered and died on the cross and poured out his blood all we can do is believe believe by faith and receive the gracious gift of god to be forgiven of sin and legalism anything that teaches there's something that we can do to make ourselves right it, it, it opposes completely what the cross represents of course, false teaching in its different forms, you know, wolves and sheep's clothing, people who are outly spiritual, but they're driven inwardly by self-will and self-agendas and an earthly mindset. And again, Paul says, these are enemies of the cross of Christ because there's no self-sacrifice in them. They're the most selfish individuals under the sun. I don't care how spiritual they look, Paul would say. They're an enemy of the cross. They say Jesus, they quote Bible verses, but they don't deny themselves. They're always looking out for their agenda. And they're always seeking what's best for them. And Paul would say, that's an enemy of the cross of Christ. And in the different forms that they exist, he identifies in these verses some characteristics of those who are enemies of the cross. One thing he says strongly here in verse 19 is he says, their end is destruction. 
That's the ultimate consequence. Their end is destruction. That word destruction there does not refer to annihilation or being destroyed. That word that's used there refers to eternal destruction or damnation in being separated from the presence of God because that's how God views a life that's been destroyed. A life that's been destroyed from God's perspective is a life that has gone into eternal damnation and separated from the presence of God forever. So what they were doing, the Bible is very clear, the consequence of how they were living and the outcome. He mentions as well another characteristic of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He says as well there that their God is their belly indicating they're driven by appetite for whatever satisfies them. Uh, any form of personal pleasure. Uh, they're after financial prosperity. They're after acknowledgement and power and recognition. Uh, they're, they're, their God is self-satisfaction. They live in a way to fulfill themselves. They're self-indulgent in their character, the Bible's saying. This is their nature. They're, they're like a hungry person. Again, their God is their belly. They're like a hungry person and if you've ever seen someone, they're extremely hungry and they're starving, they become desperate and they will do whatever it takes to cruelly even devour other people. People will eat other people. And, and literally people can become so desperate for their own self-fulfillment and self-agenda and self-satisfaction, they will devour and destroy everybody in their path. And they will eat everybody alive and don't even care because they're going to get what they want to get because they're God is their own belly, their own appetite, and that's what they want. And the Bible speaks of individuals like this. 1 Timothy 6, 5, Paul warns, he says, men of corrupt minds, listen to what it says, destitute of the truth, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain, using godliness in a distorted way to actually enrich themselves somehow and get ahead. It happens. The Bible just says from such people, it says, withdraw yourself. So just, just get away from people like that. Paul says as well in Romans 16, verse 17, 18, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, those who separate and cause catastrophes and blow apart people. He says, note people like this because they live contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who do such, he says, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by, listen what he says, smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. They're master manipulators. Master manipulators. Smooth words and flattering speech. If you're naive enough, they'll eat you alive. They'll eat you alive, the Bible says. We've got to notice this stuff. He says we've got to recognize these kind of things. He says they glory in their shame. Again, they're not giving God glory. They're instead always seeking to, to, to gain more glory for themselves. And he says they glory in their shame, meaning the things that they should be ashamed of are the things that they're actually glorying in all the time. They're just completely blinded. He says lastly that they set their mind on earthly things. Again, instead of their mind being on things above, their, their mind is is always interpreting things through the material experience, through temporal experience, and, and this present world. And notice Paul says in verse 18 that he warned of such unhealthy influences repeatedly. He says in verse 18, of these kind of people, he says, I've told you, he says, often, and now I'm telling you weeping. That is, he's saying, look, I'm, this is serious. There's a tear in his eye, and he's saying, listen, I've told you so many times you got to be careful. Why? Because Paul understood 
the destructive detrimental effect of unhealthy spiritual influences. Again, as I said earlier, it's just like a dangerous bacteria that gets introduced to the human system and a dangerous bacteria gets introduced to the human system and health can deteriorate real fast. Things begin to shut down and, and there begins to be problems and ultimately that dangerous bacteria can even cause death in a person. And Paul's saying same idea here. Unhealthy influences, the bad examples, they can really get some bacteria spiritually going in the system of a person or in the system in the body of Christ as a church in a way where all of a sudden things really get out of control and unhealthy he says so we must be able to recognize people who are doing these things and he says we have to be careful and realize those around us who seem in their attitudes and things to be opposing what the cross of Christ represents they're selfish they have an earthly mindset they're arrogant Paul says be careful don't let yourself be influenced by such individuals hey let me just say this before we move on admit it or not admit it or not oftentimes we find ourselves becoming like the company in which we keep it's a life lesson we may not want to admit it but the company that we keep typically and those that we look up to they influence us Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. He said in another translation this way, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. The company that we keep will influence us and that's why it's wise to avoid that which isn't a good influence. Well, final aspect in verse 20 and 21, Paul speaks about regarding spiritual health, as I said, is keeping our focus on the eternal even though we're still living here on this earth. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. They have their mind on earthly things, Paul says. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's even able to subdue all things to himself. So, in contrast to the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose mind is on earthly things, Paul says, listen, we believe in the purpose of what the cross represents. And our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. Now, writing to the people in Philippi, Philippi was not located in Rome. But yet, though geographically Philippi was away from Rome, they were still Roman citizens. So their lives were still governed by the protocol, the laws, the rulership of what it meant to be a Roman citizen even though they lived elsewhere. And he's saying the same way with us. They could relate to this. Our citizenship as Christians, it's in heaven. Are we right now occupying and living geographically on this earth in a temporum? Yes, but he says, even though we're away from home, even though we're on foreign soil as a child of God, we got to remember we're citizens of heaven. We should always feel a little out of place in this world. We should always remember that we are not home and that we should be governed by the laws of heaven first and foremost. Our value system, our protocol, what we do and don't do, the rights and privileges we have are spiritual and eternal. And we're here visiting and we're, we're, we're on, a, on a foreign trip. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I'm not saying that we should not honor and respect the authority of the laws of our land. The Bible teaches we should. We have a dual citizenship but our higher and more important citizenship is the citizenship we have in heaven. 
And we should live our lives in such a way remembering that. Paul says that we also are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word eagerly wait means that it indicates to have attention off of the inferior focus so that we might have our attention and anticipation on what matters more. And that's the idea. Yes, we have to give attention to this earthly life and be responsible, submit to the laws of our land and, and, and so forth. But he says there is a more important focus that we should have and we should be eagerly waiting. The king of the citizen of which we are connected to in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the believer's spiritual longing. That should be our spiritual longing eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Titus says we should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And I know I struggle just like you as we function in this realm and we have to exist here for now. We're bombarded by all these things and it's tough. And at times my expectancy of Jesus' imminent return and my longing to want to go, sometimes that gets watered down and, and, and botched up with other things. And can I just say... You know, this morning, if you find yourself having lost an expectation and eagerness and enthusiasm about the soon return of Jesus Christ, that you would just humbly pray, Lord, by your spirit, would you quicken me again whereby I would have an enthusiasm, an expectancy, an eagerness to want to be with you and to have a heavenly focus and to remember those kind of things as I journey here on this earth I believe the Lord will do that so it's the believer's longing but in this verse as well I think please notice if you're an unbeliever if you're an unbeliever here as well is the answer to becoming a citizen of heaven people come here and there's a process to become an American citizen well there's a process to become a citizen of heaven it's right there in our verse the way to become a citizen of heaven is to come to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to become a citizen of heaven. You don't have to take classes. You don't have to pay for anything. But you need acceptance from the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to go to him as a sinner and realize that you don't deserve it and say, I need your acceptance because I want to become a citizen of heaven. I believe you, Jesus. Save me. Forgive me. I receive your gift of eternal life. And it's through that process one then becomes a citizen of heaven. Well, look, verse 21, Paul also adds another reason we should be anticipating the return of Jesus. He says, verse 21, because he will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body. So the believer's body physically, this present tent, the believer's body, notice, is scheduled for a supernatural transformation that God, as Jesus returns in a powerful, miraculous way, says here that Jesus is going to transform our earthly body, this lowly body right now into a glorious body like his resurrection body. See, this present earthly body that you and I have now, that 
It's designed to function on this planet. It breathes oxygen. This body is a temporal body, but God says it's a lowly body. And it's designed to exist in this environment and this realm. But there is a glorious eternal body, an upgraded version, if you catch my drift, that God will then give to us as he transforms these bodies into an upgraded version that's designed for the eternal dimension. We need that to take place, and that will happen, the Bible says, at the return of Jesus. You can study this out in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. Listen, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We shall all be changed. This corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So there's coming a time where these bodies will be transformed into a glorious eternal body prepared for the eternal dimension. Now, people ask all the time and we wonder, well, what's the characteristics of that body going to be like? What will its capabilities be like? We're not 100% certain. And the Bible does not even give to us every detail, but we are told it will be like Jesus's glorified resurrection body, which tells us a few things. That means that body's going to have a physical frame. It's not going to, we're not going to be in some ethereal realm where we pass through one another like ghosts. You know, oh, it's been so good to see you. You know, whoosh, oh, let's try again. Whoosh, you know. No, it's going to have a physical body. According to what we see in Jesus after his resurrection, he ate. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Non-caloric food, I'm certain. Put on all you want. You're not going to put on no extra weight because that's an eternal, perfect, glorified body. Eat. Jesus ate in his resurrected body. He ate in his glorified body. It seems travel was different. He passed right through walls. There was identity recognition. You're going to recognize one another. You're going to recognize your loved ones who've gone home to be with Jesus. You're going to recognize one another. It's going to be a glorious experience. And this morning, the assurance of that eternal transformation of your body, if you're here and you're struggling with sickness and you have cancer or a disease or a physical ailment and you struggle in your physical body, listen, you should be so encouraged because there is coming a time soon where guess what? You're going to get to trade in the old junker <laughs> and you're going to get an upgraded model with no pain or sickness and suffering to dwell in forever. That's a glorious assurance, especially for many who struggle in their health or you know, they have limitations or a handicap to realize, hey, it's just for this life. There's coming something much, much better. And notice that's going to happen. Verse 21, it says, according to the powerful working by which Jesus is able to subdue, it says, all things to himself. When Jesus returns to reign, he's going to exercise his full authority and he's going to subdue or put under his control all things. That's what that term means. To bring into submission or under one's control. It's that power that Jesus has that is also going to be the power that's going to transform our bodies. And let me leave you with this thought this morning. That means, and let us remember by way of application, Jesus has the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Everything. And this morning, what are you facing today? Is there something in your life that's out of control and you have no ability in your personal limitations, you're, you have an inability, it, it, it's out of your control and you can't bring it under control? Jesus can. And I help at times in my life 
myself to just wonder if maybe all that God's trying to do in the midst of these times is teach me another lesson where I think on occasion what he is just waiting for is for us to surrender and to humbly cry, Lord, take control. Lord, it's out of control. But you can bring it under control. Take control, Lord. Take control. Listen, wonderful to have good examples smart to not follow bad examples, good to have a heavenly focus, but the healthiest spiritual life is a life that is lived where Jesus is in full control. Amen?